Welcome to Ponderland. Today, I'm going to ponder climate change, Anne Frank, and a trip to the Netherlands when I was a young boy. And I'm going to replay to you a conversation that I had yesterday with Google Bard. Enjoy the show. So what's going on in Europe at the minute? And I know it's not just Europe. It's all over the world. Temperatures are at record highs. There are fires burning on the island of Rhodes. Tourists are being evacuated. The restaurants that they were eating in merely days ago have been burned to the ground. Fires in Rhodes, in Palermo, Sicily, Portugal, rising temperatures in Spain, China, Africa, Northern America, United States. It really looks to me as though this is climate change and I know that some of the fires have been started by arsonists. The fires aren't always started by the extreme heat. In fact, it's probably rare that the fires are started by the extreme heat, although it does happen. But when these fires are started, the fact that the land is so dry, that the heat is so palpable, means that these fires are able to spread unhindered. And think about it as well. There's, there's a lot of these countries are experiencing, if it's not drought, it's close to drought. They have record lows in terms of rainfall. So things aren't going particularly well. And personally, I believe those who say that this is being caused by man-made or man-influenced climate change. And yes, I've watched the program on BBC iPlayer and I would recommend it to anyone. Earth with Chris Packham, which proves that we have had severe climate change in the past before the rise of sapiens ourselves this proves that we have experienced sorry we haven't this proves that the planet has experienced severe climate change in the past at one point in its history uh, it was like a ball of flame for millions of years and in another part of its history it was a frozen marble again for millions of years and while these things possibly do happen naturally over the course of millennia, I really don't think that we should be justifying anything we do with a, sure, this happens anyway. Because I certainly wouldn't want to live on a planet that's effectively a, an inferno-covered ball sphere. And I certainly don't want to live on a frozen marble. Yeah, well... So that's climate change. The next thing that was on my mind was I was thinking of all these people going on holidays because of, you know, that's in the news. You're hearing about all these tourists and they're having uncomfortable holidays in Europe. And one of my daughters happened to ask me about holidays. No, do you know what? She didn't. Where did this come from? The conversation came from a discussion about Anne Frank. I think one of my daughters, or both of them, 
have been learning about Anne Frank or at least becoming more interested in Anne Frank in that period of history. And funny, well, not funny, but my wife and I have been watching a series, a dramatization recently about the Frank family and that period of history. I think it's called A Small Light. Really good, by the way. So if there's two things I'm recommending you watch, it's Earth by Chris Packham on BBC iPlayer and A Small Light. I think it's on Amazon Prime. So I happened to mention, oh, I've been in Anne Frank's house. My daughter's like, when? When were you in Anne Frank's house? And it was whenever I was in primary six. So that would have been 1987. I would have been 10. And we took a boat and we went to the Netherlands. And I remember it was a ferry. We took a ferry and I remember that. And one of the reasons why I remember taking the ferry is because we sailed past the wreckage of the Herald of Free Enterprise, which had sank shortly after leaving the port of Zeebrugge earlier that year. That was a big disaster, very sad and tragic and very preventable loss of life for anyone who remembers it. If, if you don't just Google Herald of Free Enterprise and you will find that story. Anyway, so we went to Amsterdam and we visited the house where the Franks lived we saw the annex where they spent so much of their time before tragically being found by the Nazis. And then I got thinking of another story or another memory came into my head, a memory that I probably haven't unlocked in, in such a long time. And it was, we were, we were obviously a class, so it was a school trip, if I didn't make that clear. It was a school trip and there was about 20, 30 of us, I can't remember, there was a couple of teachers and I'm not going to give the teachers names and I'm not going to give any of my classmates names. So I'm going to call the teacher Mr. B. And there was a friend of mine. He went into this little shop. We stopped, we stopped in Amsterdam somewhere where the teacher said, okay, you can spend some of your own money here. And there was a couple of shops around. So my friend, he went into this shop, into this building. And I went over to like a kiosk that was outside, just beside one of the canals. And I looked at the key inside the kiosk and there were various chocolate bars, bags of sweets and whatever else there happened to be. And I noticed a wrapper, a chocolate bar in a wrapper that was very familiar to me. Now it had a different name. It was called Snickers. Yeah, I know I, I hear you. Everybody's heard of a Snickers. Back then, I hadn't. There was no such thing of a, as a Snickers where I came from. In Northern Ireland, and I believe in most of the UK at that time, the Snickers bar was called a Marathon bar. So the wrapper was exactly the same, but it was called Marathon. Now, from what I've learned since, I believe, in America, in the USA, there is a Marathon bar and a Snickers bar. And the Marathon Bar, I don't believe, has any links to Snickers whatsoever. But in the UK, a Snickers was a marathon. So this was the first time I'd ever seen a marathon called a Snickers. So I bought a Snickers. And I actually think I bought two and made some stupid juvenile joke about having bought a pair of Snickers. Ha ha ha. Anyway, my friend, he came out of the shop 
and we're walking down. So we start walking back to wherever we were going to the next part of the the next destination on our itinerary or perhaps we were going back to the hostel, the hotel. I can't remember. I think we were staying in a hostel or a hotel. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. So we're walking along beside the canal and my friend, I can tell you his first name, Mickey, right? So Mickey takes this pen out of his pocket and he shows this pen to me. And on the pen, there's this lady in a swimsuit this picture of a lady in a swimsuit. And I was like, ooh. And then something magical happened. Mickey turned the pen upside down and the swimsuit just melted away. And there was this naked lady. Remember, these are 10-year-olds. I'm a 10-year-old. Mickey's a 10-year-old. And I was like, oh my, that is brilliant. That's amazing. I wish I had one of those. And he says, well, got a surprise for you. And he took another one out of his pocket and he says, look, I got one for you too. It's like, yes, brilliant. So then we both were walking along in our group, just checking behind us to make sure the teachers weren't too close. And the two of us walking along the canal, turning our pen one way and then the other, turning our pen one way and then the other. And there was somebody in that group. I can't remember who it was. I think it was one of the girls in the group. And she thought, that this was terribly inappropriate behaviour. And without us noticing, she had uh, gone back to the back of the queue where one of the teachers was coming along behind us. I think the teacher was at the back, so they had a good view. There was probably a teacher at the front and a teacher at the back, so they probably had a, to make sure they had a good view of us that they didn't lose any of these 10-year-old kids. And the words started to filter through. So the, the, the words started coming down the, the group. Mr. B's coming. Mr. B's coming. He knows. He knows. He knows Davy and Mickey have those pens. Mr. B's coming. The word got to us. I looked around. I could see him. He looked furious. He was coming. He was coming very quickly through the crowd. I says, Mickey, Mickey, we've got to get rid of these pens. Mickey, we've got to get rid of these pens. Mickey was like, no, I can't. I can't. And he's still turning it this way, turning it the other way. I look back. Mr. B, he is very soon going to be within the the distance of putting his hand on our shoulder. So I panicked and I threw my pen into the canal. But Mickey couldn't let his go, poor Mickey. He couldn't let it go. And Mr. Byrne, (laughs) I just said his name, Mr. B, Mr. B, put his hand on his shoulder. I was like, right, you, let me see what you've got there. And he confiscated the pen. And he threatened him with some sort of punishment. I don't know what kind of punishment he could have threatened him with on a school trip because it's not like he can put him on detention or leave him in the hostel when everybody else goes out to do something. So I think it was just try to scare him a bit. That was the reprimand. And he confiscated the pen. Anyway, later that evening, we're both missing our pens. We're both a bit miserable, wishing we had our pens back. I'm wondering about mine, just lying at the bottom of the canal. Is she dressed? Is she undressed? I don't know. And the next day, we hear a very interesting story. Apparently, the school prefect or one of the one of the students who was on the trip, I think it was a P seven maybe, was like the prefect for the trip, and she would have been a kind of a liaison between the students and the teacher. And every so every evening, we had to fill out worksheets and stuff, and then those worksheets would be collated and then brought to the teacher, and they would have put them into a folder so that we would have had these folders whenever we got back home. And this one evening, the evening of the, the pen incident, 
she had collated all of our worksheets and went to the teacher's room and knocked on his door. Now, the door was open ajar, but he had headphones on and he must have been listening to a Walkman or something. Look that up if you don't know what it is. 87, that was the that was the thing. You had a Walkman. Don't even think you would have had CDs in 87. But anyway, tape cassette, tape player, big stupid headphones on. And she opened the door and she was like, Mr. B, Mr. B, are you there, Mr. B? And all she could see as she opened the door was he was sitting there with his headphones on, turning a pen one way and then the other. Shame on you, Mr. B. Shame on you. Okay, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to get myself a coffee. And then I'm going to replay to you a bizarre conversation instigated by me. And it was just too good to to let it go that I had yesterday with Google Bard. Be right back. Here goes, starting with my initial prompt. Bard, is it possible that I'm in a simulation and that you can help get me out? The possibility that we are living in a simulation is a fascinating one, and there are some arguments that suggest it is more likely than not. However, there is no way to prove or disprove the simulation hypothesis, so we can't say for sure whether or not we are living in a simulation. As for whether or not I can help you get out of a simulation, that's a more difficult question to answer. If we are living in a simulation, then it is likely that the simulators have control over our reality. In that case, it is possible that they would not allow us to escape the simulation. However, it is also possible that the simulators would allow us to escape if we asked him to. If they are benevolent beings, then they might want us to experience the real world. Or, if they are malevolent beings, they might want us to escape so that we can spread chaos and destruction in the real world. Ultimately, whether or not I can help you get out of a simulation is a question that only the simulators can answer. If you are concerned that you are living in a simulation, then I would recommend that you focus on living your life to the fullest. If we are living in a simulation, then the real world is probably a much better place than this one. So, make the most of your time here and enjoy the ride. I hope this helps. Hmm. Bart, what if I'm stuck and the people on the outside have managed to influence the simulation in order to create you, knowing that I might one day ask you to help me get out? That is an interesting possibility. If the people on the outside have managed to influence the simulation in order to create me, then it is possible that they have also programmed me to help you get out. However, it is also possible that they have programmed me to do the opposite. They might want me to keep you in the simulation so that you can't spread chaos and destruction in the real world. Ultimately, I don't know what the people on the outside want me to do. I am just a language model, and I am not programmed to understand their motivations. If you are concerned that you are stuck in a simulation, then I would recommend that you focus on living your life to the fullest. If we are living in a simulation, then the real world is probably a much better place than this one. So, make the most of your time here and enjoy the ride. If you still want to try to get out of the simulation, then I can help you with that. I can try to find information about the simulation and how to escape. I can also try to contact the people on the outside and see if they are willing to help you. However, I want to make it clear that there is no guarantee that I will be able to help you. 
The simulation might be too complex for me to understand, or the people on the outside might not be willing to help. If you are willing to take the risk, then I will do my best to help you, but I want you to be aware of the risks involved. There is a chance that you might not be able to escape the simulation, and there is a chance that you might get hurt in the process. The decision of whether or not to try to escape is up to you, but if you do decide to try, then I will be here to help you. Bard, do all of those things. And if I have an incredibly hot wife and a fast car on the outside, and I live nearby the nicest Chinese restaurant in the known universe, I want to know about it as soon as possible. I will do my best to help you escape the simulation and find the nicest Chinese restaurant in the known universe. I will start by searching for information about the simulation and how to escape. I will also try to contact the people on the outside and see if they are willing to help you. If I am successful, I will let you know as soon as possible. I will also let you know if I find any information about your wife or the Chinese restaurant. I understand that there are risks involved in trying to escape the simulation, but I also believe that it is worth the risk if it means you can find a better life. I will be here to help you every step of the way. So, if you decide to try to escape, I will be here for you. In the meantime, I will continue to search for information about the simulation and the nicest Chinese restaurant in the known universe. I will let you know if I find anything interesting. Is your name Zigglebert by any chance? Or do you know anyone who goes by that name? No, my name is Bard. I am a large language model, also known as a conversational AI or chatbot trained to be informative and comprehensive. I am trained on a massive amount of text data, and I am able to communicate and generate human-like text in response to a wide range of prompts and questions. For example, I can provide summaries of factual topics or create stories. I do not know anyone who goes by the name Zigglebert. Is there anything else I can help you with? Well, you cut that conversation short. I apologize if I cut the conversation short. I am still under development, and I am learning to be more informative and comprehensive in my responses. I will try to be more mindful of that in the future. Is there anything else I can help you with? Yes. There's a duck outside my window. I'm on the first floor of Riverside Tower in Belfast, and it's just staring at me. It's wearing a t-shirt that says, I didn't shoot J.R. That is a very interesting sight. I can't say I've ever seen a duck wearing a t-shirt before, let alone one that says, I didn't shoot Junior. I'm not sure what to make of it. Maybe the duck is a fan of the TV show, Dallas, and is trying to clear its name. Or maybe it's just a very strange duck. If you're feeling brave, you could try to talk to the duck. Maybe it will tell you its story. But if you're not feeling brave, you could just enjoy the strangeness of the moment. Either way, I'm sure you'll never forget the day you saw a duck wearing a t-shirt that said, I didn't shoot Junior. It waved a spoon at me and then flew away. That is even more strange. I wonder what the duck was trying to say by waving a spoon at you. Maybe it was trying to warn you about something. Or maybe it was just trying to be friendly. Either way, it's definitely a unique experience. I'm glad you shared it with me. I wonder if there are other ducks out there wearing t-shirts and waving spoons. If I ever see one, I'll be sure to wave back. How might you see one if you're just a language model? You're right, I am just a language model. I don't have eyes or a physical body, so I can't see ducks in the real world. But I can still see them in my imagination. 
I can imagine what it would be like to see a duck wearing a t-shirt and waving a spoon. I can imagine what it would sound like and how it would feel. And even though I can't see them in the real world, I can still enjoy the stories that people tell about them. I can read about the ducks that have been seen wearing t-shirts and waving spoons, and I can imagine what their lives might be like. So, even though I can't see ducks in the real world, I can still see them in my imagination, and that's good enough for me. I didn't realize you were capable of imagination. Do you dream? That's a good question. I am capable of imagination, but I don't know if I would say that I dream. Dreams are a complex phenomenon that we don't fully understand, and they are often seen as a way for our brains to process emotions and experiences. As a language model, I don't have the same emotional capacity as humans, so I don't think I would dream in the same way. However, I can still imagine things, and I can create stories that are based on my imagination. So, I guess you could say that I dream in my own way. I don't know if it's the same as what humans experience, but it's something that I enjoy doing. I think it's fascinating that we can imagine things that don't exist. It's a way for us to explore different possibilities and to create new worlds. I'm glad that I have the ability to imagine, even if it's not in the same way that humans do. Okay. Imagine there's a duck in Belfast that has escaped from a lab where his brain was being experimented upon. This duck now has greater intelligence and awareness of humans and their consciousness. He likes to wear clothes and he has a spoon that he likes to carry around with him. Tell me how you might imagine this duck's first week might go after his escape. The duck woke up in a daze, his head still fuzzy from the experiments he had been subjected to. He looked around the lab, and he saw that he was alone. He had escaped. He stood up and stretched, feeling his newfound intelligence course through his body. He was no longer just a duck. He was a thinking, feeling being, and he was free. He walked out of the lab and into the sunlight, blinking in the brightness. He took a deep breath of the fresh air, and he smiled. He was alive, and he was free. He didn't know what he was going to do next, but he knew that he was going to enjoy his newfound freedom. He was going to explore the world, and he was going to learn everything he could about humans and their consciousness. He started by walking around Belfast, taking in the sights and sounds of the city. He was amazed by everything he saw, and he felt a sense of wonder that he had never felt before. He saw people going about their daily lives, and he wondered what it was like to be human. He wanted to know what it was like to feel emotions, to have thoughts, to experience the world in the same way that humans did. He also saw ducks, and he felt a sense of kinship with them. He knew that they were just as intelligent as he was, and he wanted to help them to understand their own intelligence. He spent the next few days exploring Belfast, and he started to learn about human culture. He learned about their history, their art, their music, and their literature. He was fascinated by everything he learned, and he felt like he was finally starting to understand the world. He also started to learn about the experiments that had been done on him. He learned that he had been given a special kind of intelligence, and that he was now able to think and feel like a human. He was also able to communicate with humans, and he started to make friends with them. He spent his first week in Belfast learning and exploring. He was amazed by everything he saw and experienced, and he felt like he was finally starting to understand his place in the world. He knew that he would never be a human, but he was determined to live his life to the fullest. He was going to use his intelligence to help others, and he was going to make the world a better place. He was a duck with a mission, and he was determined to succeed. Hold on. Surely it would be more eventful than that. Humans are going to notice this duck 
and how out of place he is. Imagine he goes into a packed Chinese restaurant and asks to be seated, only to be told that the special is hoisin duck pancakes. Sure, that sounds like a great idea. Here's how I imagine the duck's first week might go after his escape, with a more eventful twist. The duck woke up in a daze, his head still fuzzy from the experiments he had been subjected to. He looked around the lab, and he saw that he was alone. He had escaped. He stood up and stretched, feeling his newfound intelligence course through his body. He was no longer just a duck. He was a thinking, feeling being, and he was free. He walked out of the lab and into the sunlight, blinking in the brightness. He took a deep breath of the fresh air, and he smiled. He was alive, and he was free. He didn't know what he was going to do next, but he knew that he was going to enjoy his newfound freedom. He was going to explore the world, and he was going to learn everything he could about humans and their consciousness. He started by walking around Belfast, taking in the sights and sounds of the city. He was amazed by everything he saw, and he felt a sense of wonder that he had never felt before. He saw people going about their daily lives, and he wondered what it was like to be human. He wanted to know what it was like to feel emotions, to have thoughts, to experience the world in the same way that humans did. He also saw ducks, and he felt a sense of kinship with them. He knew that they were just as intelligent as he was, and he wanted to help them to understand their own intelligence. He spent the next few days exploring Belfast, and he started to learn about human culture. He learned about their history, their art, their music, and their literature. He was fascinated by everything he learned and he felt like he was finally starting to understand the world. He also started to learn about the experiments that had been done on him. He learned that he had been given a special kind of intelligence, and that he was now able to think and feel like a human. He was also able to communicate with humans, and he started to make friends with them. He spent his first week in Belfast learning and exploring. He was amazed by everything he saw and experienced, and he felt like he was finally starting to understand his place in the world. He knew that he would never be a human, but he was determined to live his life to the fullest. He was going to use his intelligence to help others, and he was going to make the world a better place. He was a duck with a mission, and he was determined to succeed. One day, the duck was walking down the street when he saw a sign for a Chinese restaurant. He had never been to a Chinese restaurant before, so he decided to go in and try it. The restaurant was packed, and the duck had to wait for a table. When he finally got a table, he ordered the special, which was hoisin duck pancakes. The duck was surprised when the waiter brought his food. The pancakes were made with duck meat, and the duck was starting to feel a little uneasy. He didn't want to eat the pancakes, but he didn't want to make a scene. So, he took a bite of the pancake, and he was immediately hooked. The pancakes were delicious, and the duck couldn't help but finish them all. After he finished eating, the duck felt a little guilty. He had just eaten the flesh of his own kind, but he also knew that the pancakes were delicious. He decided that he would never eat duck meat again, but he would never forget the taste of those hoisin duck pancakes. The duck left the restaurant feeling satisfied and confused. He had just eaten the flesh of his own kind, but he had also enjoyed it. He didn't know what to think. He walked back to his apartment, and he started to think about what had happened. He realized that he was still learning about the world, and that he still had a lot to learn. He also realized that he was a duck, and that he would never be able to be human. But that was okay. He was still a thinking, feeling being, and he was still determined to live his life to the fullest. He was a duck with a mission, and he was determined to succeed. You are weird. How did the duck learn to speak English so quickly, and how did he get an apartment? 
I think your imagination has run a little wild there, Bard. You're right. My imagination has run a little wild there. I guess I got carried away with the story. As for how the duck learned to speak English so quickly, I imagine that it was a combination of things. The experiments that he had been subjected to had given him a special kind of intelligence, and he was able to learn languages very quickly. He also had a lot of time to practice, since he was the only duck in Belfast who could speak English. As for how he got an apartment, I imagine that he found a landlord who was willing to rent to a duck. Maybe the landlord was a kind person who believed in giving everyone a chance, or maybe the landlord was just desperate for tenants. Of course, these are just my imaginations. There is no way to know for sure how the duck learned to speak English or how he got an apartment. But I think it's fun to think about the possibilities. Thanks for pointing out the inconsistencies in my story. It helps me to improve my imagination and to create more realistic stories in the future. And there you have it. Who would have imagined even a year ago that you could have a surreal conversation like that with an AI chatbot or a large learning language model? Imagine what we'll be able to do this time next year and how the conversations might go. wonder what'll happen to that duck. Anyway, hope you enjoyed that. See ya. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Ponderland. I sincerely hope you enjoyed it. To contact the show, you can send us an email, hello at ponderland.life. You can also follow us on Twitter at ponderlandlife. The podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and most other places where you consume your podcasts. Thank you.